One of the things that I really appreciate about uh, this tradition and the teachings that come through this tradition is is the um, the clarity of um, what I hear. So when we're reading or we're chanting the chant that we did this evening um, before we began the meditation, things are laid out in a clear and gradual path. And starting with such things like, you know, not hanging out with fools is uh, a blessing. And living in a good place is a blessing. And, you know, taking care of your parents is a blessing. So it doesn't start with a kind of philosophical, um, abstract idea about ultimate nature of reality. It's pretty grounded um, stuff that most of us can relate to in terms of living a life in a way where we're, be- we're cultivating wholesome conditions and moving away from unwholesome conditions. And that is every part of our life, you know, from where we live, who we're hanging out with, the way we're relating to our family the kinds of things that we do, having a a way of earning a living, you know, living in a way where we don't feel regret about the kinds of things that we're doing or saying. And then um, inch by inch applying ourselves in our lives and our hearts and our minds so that there's a a shift from a, a worldly way of looking at things into a way where in the end one is free and a sense of safety no matter where one goes. So that that sense of freedom and safety, no matter where one goes, is a radical departure from what most people live with in their normal life, which is an experience of terror. (laughs) And an experience of wanting to get what they want, get rid of what they don't want, and a kind of uh, endless kind of escapade to try and navigate this territory. And so, you know, the the teachings are clear in terms of setting it up to support people to begin where they're at. Nobody's asked to start any place different from where they're at. And then uh, offering encouragement and instructions to make inroads so that there's a little bit more peace, a little bit less suffering. And then that gradually spreads and includes every aspect of one's body, heart, and mind, life, lifestyle, and relationship so that eventually there's a transformation that can take place and there's a deep sense of inner freedom which is possible. Now, one of the things which is apparent from just this blessing chant that we recited, the Mangala Sutta, the highest blessings, is, is, is that you know one doesn't start with a kind of ultimate or transcendent peace which is not grounded in the relationships and the structures that one is living with. You know, one starts with structures, One starts with where one's living. One starts with relationships. And then from that, then one comes to a a deeper understanding and a more of a transcendent peace. So I've just come back from a week of being away. And uh, I was, was, um, the Awakening Truth Board of Directors was very happy and uh, supportive of me going to an ordination that was going to be in California. And I was very happy to go because this was going to be uh, an event of extraordinary significance. 
It's the first time in the Western Hemisphere that an ordination of this kind was going to be taking place, and I wanted to be present to observe it. So I knew that the preceptor was giving the ordination, and and her main disciple have had quite significant health issues, and so I didn't want to make myself a burden, so I brought a tent and a sleeping bag and a camping mat, and I went with my work robes, and I figured, well, I'll go and just get plugged in and stuck in, you know, and help and do what needs to be done and sweep and set up chairs and whatever needs to be done, I figured, you know, I'll be there to help. So Terry is a dear friend, and she's also an advisor and has been around for a while. She picked me up at the airport, and I stayed over at her house, and we went up, drove up, and on the way up, we had a lovely conversation just checking in and touching base and, you know, how things were and all the rest of that. And when I got there, it was so lovely to be there. It was just so lovely. A woman by the name of Jill had 400 acres of land on the Sonoma Coast, and she got this land when it was inexpensive in the 1970s, and she's given a parcel of 120 acres for this forest monastery for bhikkhunis, and when she gave it to them, there was nothing there. There was no buildings, there was no water, there was no electricity. It was just kind of a bare piece of forested land that was had lovely you know, streams and hills and ferns and redwoods and meadows and all the rest of that, but no infrastructure and a road that was mother said was the worst road she's ever been on in her life. (laughs) So in the few years that they've had this and they've been going there on retreats, you know, people have donated trailers and they've got a yurt that's set up and now they've got some solar panels and they've got a generator and they've got some water, so I think they've got well water. And so, you know, none of the doors to any of the trailers close properly and, you, you know, it's one of those kinds of places. And they've got a camp shower where they've got a shower head inside of a tent (laughs) and I had a shower one morning and I couldn't get it hot so it was a cold shower and a cold morning and it was like unsatisfactory but delightful that you could have a shower you know just delightful that you could have a shower so this was the setup and you know they they were expecting um, a number of lay guests and they had some monastics were visiting and somebody I don't know how the yurt came to be, but they set the yurt up this this summer. So the yurt was going to be where the ordination was going to take place, and it was a lovely round space, and it looked nice, and, you know, I was happy to be there. So in a forest monastery situation, you know, there's a whole culture about how one lives in a forest monastery, and that culture is... is, uh, is clear. You know, I've been living like that for 20 years. And so I don't need to know the personality of any of the sisters. In fact, I don't even know to know them at all. There's a sense of coming into the space and knowing exactly what to do, where I belong, how to, how to relate, what is needed, and how it flows. And because I've been in Colorado now for a year, this was the first time I was going to be with sisters at all since I left England. And I was, I was looking forward as well as curious what was going to happen. I thought I was going to be very emotional, you know, because it's different being with sisters than it is not with sisters. And it just felt very friendly and just very welcoming, so I was happy to be there. And, you know, the sisters were impeccable with a very high level of training and a, a remarkable level of um, precision in the monastic uh, forest uh, disciplines. And afterwards, I went to go say hello to Aya, who was the abbess. And so Terry and I went together, and we went down to say hello. And 
um, I paid my respects, and it was this completely casual conversation as if nothing really big was happening at all, and she just kind of mentioned that she'd sent a couple of emails and I hadn't responded to them. So what were they about? Well, Ajahn Pasana would be coming and she wanted me to know as soon as possible, and also one of the invitations was to join in the ordination. Well, I don't know what you know about what's been going on, but there's been quite a thing that's been going on over the last few years in terms of the politics with the Sangha and where I've been in the monastery and what the forest tradition has been up to. And so this particular ordination was not considered something that the monastery that I was part of would be able to support, and the reasons are complicated. So one of the reasons why I left was because the, the reasons that they weren't able to support this were not reasons that I really had a lot of congruence with. So there was like a retrenchment into patriarchal values and non-participatory decision-making, and, and this was uh, something that I knew was not helpful. So it was clear to me to go. So I don't have any regrets, and I was never, you know... Um, and it was extremely painful. It was a lot more painful than I, well, than one might imagine. You know, leaving a community that you've been part of for 20 years and leaving a community of sisters you've been embedded in and gone through unimaginable things with, you know, and ending up in Colorado Springs of all places mm-hmm. with a bunch of people who don't really have a clue which way is up in terms of what a monastic is and how to look after them and, and all the rest of that. Anyway, so this ordination was a significant thing in the politics of what's been going on in the last couple of years. Now, I have been a senior nun now for many years, and in the process of training people, we have gone through extensive and extremely rigorous scrutiny of candidates as to who's accepted and who's not accepted. And for many people, it takes years so they come as a layperson, and they're interested, and they hang out for a while, and then they ask to be in Anagarica, and there's a process, and we consider, and we review, and we talk with everybody there. We get some feedback. We have interviews. We have questionnaires. We ask them, you know, and so they, they stay for a year. There's more interviews. There's more questions. There's more feedback. Then they ask for the higher ordination. It's a long process. And in all of my years as a monastic, I've never, ever heard of a situation of a person being offered the higher ordination without any kind of process. So I come, I'm paying respects, expecting to help sweep, and she's asking if I want to ordain. Okay. And 20 years of, like, the morass of everything, of the complexity, the discernment, the decisions, the thinking, the, the everything was, like, right in my... And, and yet, what I felt was this tremendous warmth and welcome from the sisters, and it was overwhelming, you know? It, it was just so beautiful to see that level of inclusion and welcome and being received. And... Interestingly enough, I said to her, I didn't get the email she sent, and if I had gotten the email she'd sent, she'd sent it a a month ago, I would have said no. And the reason why was because Gwen had only just arrived, and I didn't want to put her under pressure. And the community in in Colorado Springs was in no way, shape, or form geared up to support the Bikuni Vinaya at a level of standard that I thought was important. So things have a very funny way of unfolding. (laughs) So I said, but, you know, I, I mean, everything was like a mess. I, I said, well, I just need more time. So 
we talked about a few things, and she said, fine. I said, I need some more time. So I went and I sat in a redwood grove in a fairy ring of redwood trees, and I had one hour before the rehearsal was due to begin. And I sat, and initially what I felt was this incredible complexity of all of the morass of everything that was there, and then my attention just dropped into this incredible, still, clear, silent, pristine joy. And I just stayed that way for the rest of the whole meditation. And then I pulled myself out into a place where discernment was operating, and I checked against all of my questions and doubts and concerns. You know, what about this and that and that and that and that? What about this and that and that and that and that? You know, and if I flip out afterwards, am I going to be able to cope? You know, all of my concerns. And with everything, there was no obstacle. And with, with, the, with, the, with the possible consequences, there was support that would make it, make it okay. And then I realized that my answer was yes, and I just burst into tears. I mean, this is 20 years of a kind of complexity which is unimaginable and difficult to describe in terms of sangha politics and all kinds of things, in terms of the strange situation I was in and trying to find a way out and thinking it was going to take such an enormous effort. And I come completely unexpected, and it just offered, you know, just like that. So... It was ten minutes before the rehearsal was starting, you know. And I walked down to the yurt, or I walked down to the Aya's place, and I told her, and Terry was there, and she heard my answer, and she went to cook call my mother, who lives in Santa Rosa, which was an hour away, and Catherine, who's the president of the board, and Gwen, to let her know. And that was last Saturday, ten minutes before the meditation began. And Terry told her, don't tell anybody, because she didn't want the board to learn from you folks, she wanted it to be done the right way. So you can imagine what kind of a meditation Gwen had last Saturday. So the, you know, the, the rehearsal went on for a really, really, really long time. It was, you know, first the first part of it was Aya was checking in with everybody present to see that they were still comfortable with the possibility of me participating. And what I only recently learned was is that she'd already been through this with everybody quite extensively. And so this was not a first-time check. She'd talked, she'd been in correspondence with Bhante Gunaratana, she'd sent emails to, to Bhikkhu Bodhi, to other monks, to the bhikkhunis that she knew in the Theravada tradition around the country, asking their, their, their sense of whether they would support my going forth. And there was a unilateral yes. So this, and then the sisters who were present were really keen that I participate, and I still am finding it hard to really get why, you know, what it was. But, you know, with all of the sisters that have been disrobing and all of the kind of things that have been going on in the Buddhist community, I think they felt, or at least one of them felt, my me doing this, a a bridge would open that would make it possible for the other sisters to follow if they chose. So I was both a person and a symbol for uh, something that was really um, quite uh, complex and conflicted. So they welcomed me in, and I took my seat, and we went through the chanting, and, you know, there's a lot of chanting. So I realized that there's no way that in a day I can learn all this chanting. Now, as a chanting acharini myself, some of it was familiar to me. So I had been... The, um, the the nun 
doing the chanting for other nuns in their ordination ceremonies. But this was a different ceremony, so some of the chanting was different. So, you know, it was like, all right, this is going to be an international event, and you're not going to know the chanting, you know? And that is just the way it's going to be, you know? And so, you know, I just thought, well, you know, this is not going to be about the chanting. It's going to be about something completely different. So I was fine with it. And then, you know, we finished at 8 o'clock at night, and I've got a completely new set of robes. And this place is a really kind of simple forest monastery. At Amravati and at Chithurst, we had a, a store, a closet, full of extra robes. They didn't have a store of extra robes. So every single one of the robes that I'm wearing now was given to me because a sister had an extra one or a this or a that or a spare or something, and they just pulled it out of the nothing, and, and, and it worked. And then two sisters stayed up after the ordination and sewed together one of the robes that I needed because I needed to have it for the next day. And you couldn't have a single robe. You needed a double robe, and so they made one just like that. After five hours being cold and tired, everyone was sore, and yet, anyway, so it was just amazing. So I hadn't set my tent up yet, so I went back into the woods with two others to help set up my tent. It was dark. We were in this place. The space wasn't big enough. The flat, it wasn't flat, so I got the tent up, and it was on a slope, and I got in the tent and sloping, and it was like just this, you know, wash of, of everything that was pouring through me of the day and the impressions and the significance and the feelings and, and everything. And and yet there was this real sense of, of trusting, trusting in a process that was unfolding that was not in my control and was completely not something that I expected or, or anticipated. And so, you know, I got up, you know, I didn't sleep much that night. I tried to learn the chanting even though I knew it was going to be hopeless and I got up, you know, feeling peaceful and walked down in the morning and then there was the kind of concerns that had arisen so you know people were concerned that because this was happening in this way that there was going to be uh, repercussions and other people wouldn't be coming and there would be a kind of not a good feeling and and what to do about not the good feeling and and all the rest of that so I went and spoke with Aya and we talked at length about everybody's concerns and and she was very clear they were not her concerns (laughs) You know, and and I said to her repeatedly, I said, well, you know, there is no way that I'm interested in moving forward with this if there's any sense that by doing this it's going to diminish the blessings of this event or harm her or cause um, a lack of support or dispersion of energy or anything like that. And she assured me, no, that was not what she felt, and she didn't sense that any of the others who were present felt that either. And in meanwhile, I had my antennae super sensitized, where it was not only what I was hearing, but what I was feeling and perceiving. Because you know what it's like. People can say one thing, but it can actually be, there can be ten different layers going on underneath. And so, but I was checking, and on all of the other layers, there was, it was clear. I had a clear signal. And what I heard later was is that one of the nuns who was in the trailer listening to this conversation silently spent the entire time praying that I would not back down. Oh. 
So we moved forward. I got the robes together. I tried them on. I did a this, I did a that. We did a seminary ordination because there was some concern that the ordination that I had would have some difficulties. Everything just happened like smooth. And um, and then just before the ordination, I went into a flip out. You know, it was like, I made a mistake. This is wrong. This is rushed. I don't know the chanting. It's like, I can't do this. I can't cope. This is the wrong thing to do. And then I thought, well, you know, where did this decision come from? And so it was like, well, it came from this very still, quiet place that this was actually a blessing for a huge sphere of which I was part of, but I wasn't directing it. So I said, well, just go back into that. So it was like, well, all right, and I'll have to just give up. Just, just You're going to have to just let go of any sense at all of being in control. You know, this is not an in-control thing. This is a surrender thing. So I did. And, you know, there was a procession up, which was very beautiful. It's a little bit, Mom said she was so excited because she says it's a little bit like going to a wedding. And in fact, it is. You know, it's an absolute commitment. And there are people who are sprinkling flower petals on you and chanting as you come by. And it's just very, very sweet. And the place was decorated. And there were beautiful flowers. And we went and we took our seats. And and it unfolded. And... um, so there were four women who were interested in ordaining, and one of them was the was the disciple of of the of the nun who was the preceptor. One had come from Australia for this ordination. One had come from Thailand for this ordination, and me. And we went through the chanting. And when they got through the announcement that I was a, a fully ordained nun, the chanting nun burst into tears. So, I mean, this level of caring and and support and welcome was just deeply moving, deeply, deeply moving. So the way this works with this kind of an ordination is that it's the nuns that actually perform the ordination and the monks confer it. So the monks don't perform the ordination, they just make an announcement saying that it's happened. And the monks who were present were so excited about doing this. They were so excited that they started doing the chanting before we'd actually asked. Asked, So we had to do an ask. And they didn't. They started in beforehand. So I had to ask Aya to interrupt them so that we could do our, our, our little bit beforehand. But you see, for me, I guess this has been always my sense of what the monastic life is meant to be about, is that you've got a community of monks and nuns that are rejoicing in in the process of awakening. And for whatever reason, some of which are complicated and some of which are maybe not so complicated, you know, the last many years where I've been living, that hasn't been the case. There's been um, other dynamics that have been happening and has a lot more, it's been more unfriendly rather than than that kind of ebullient rejoicing and support. So for me, I guess the reason why, you know, one of the reasons why this story is fascinating to me is, is that, you know, the I had absolutely no idea. It never once crossed my mind I was going to be going there and this would happen. It never I never occurred I never conceived of it as a possibility. And certainly we all know what happens when certain things happen and they're unexpected. 
But I guess for me what is interesting is that the years of practice of staying with the ground and moving into that which is groundless has been the overriding um, experience that has supported me in navigating the things that I've had to navigate in my life. It's not just about the concrete stuff, but staying with that which is grounded enough so that you can be in this place where it's just completely uncertain and 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 you can be there and it can be okay. And without being able to tolerate that, I don't think I could have navigated this. It would have been too disturbing. You know? So this situation where you've got a group of women who are self-directed Ayatata Loka was a Theravada nun, and at some point she decided she was going to go to Korea and get bhikshuni ordination, and she did, and then she came back and reverted to Theravada robes. And then at some point she realized that by having done that with a bhikkhuni ordination, she would be in the position to support other women who wanted to be fully ordained nuns. So she wasn't asking the monks their permission. She was just going forward with what she understood was her right and ground as a fully ordained nun to do. And so when you have a group of women who know their ground, who know their place, who are empowered and clear, and their capacity to support other women is completely different than when you are a group of women with fear, looking behind your back constantly about being judged and not having a clear sense of what your ground is. And you don't know how or you don't have within your own experience that ability to welcome other sisters. And so here, I mean, I think the other thing that was really striking for me was this wholehearted, undiluted, absolute, unconditional delight to welcome me into this without hesitation and without reservation and carry me through it because I wasn't going to be able to navigate it entirely by myself. So, I mean, it... it, and yet, and then the other thing that happens is, is, is that I realize when I come back, or the next morning I realize that I had been trying to navigate on a mental level mm-hmm. stuff that needed to be navigated on a structural level. And because I didn't have the capacity to do that, then there was naturally a sense of agitation and confusion and turmoil and distress. And I couldn't figure it out with my head how to get out of it. But because the structure changes, the ground changes, the legal standing changes, I now have community of sisters, I now have a way of plugging in to other groups and to organizations and to places, then all of a sudden the ground has shifted and I feel this unbelievable sense of peace. And so I was expecting, you know, well, I mean, one of the reasons why it would be unheard of for an ajahn or a a preceptor to do this is because the the form actually requires quite a lot of care and the adjustment is significant. And that if a person hasn't prepared themselves emotionally and the community hasn't been prepared, it could be really unsettling 
to go through that without enough time, you know? But my own experience is absolute relief. I feel so relieved. So utterly and totally relieved. It's like, wow, you know? So as sisters, we made the best of what we were given, and we were grateful for what we had. We were given an opportunity to practice as alms mendicants, which was incredibly rare. And what was set up initially was set up in order to support, because the issue around the Cooney ordination was controversial then, it still is now. And so there was this kind of wish to, to create something that would support us, but not to have to navigate this whole complex, controversial thing. But without anybody realizing what they were setting up, they were creating a situation where we were isolated from the rest of the Buddhist community. And they were also, our existence had come into being through monks, and our connection to the tradition was through monks. And in the end, the monks were saying, well, the tradition actually belongs to them. And this is what the Buddha set up. And my connection in this case is not through the monks, but through the sisters. And so the sisters have their own ground. And having their own ground, they have a sense of uh, capacity to navigate flexibility and autonomy in a way that when you don't have your own ground, you just don't, you can't do it, you know? So, you know, I came back on Thursday. Gwen picked me up from the airport, you know, and it's like, wow, I've been through something. So convention and reality, form and structure, the sense of belonging where you fit in, the sense of being isolated and alienated or not. It's like, what's different? I'm still living in Colorado Springs. I have got the hermitage. We've got the annex here. And yet it feels like the ground has completely changed. Because all of a sudden I'm linked in to a whole other group of people that have their own ground. So, you know, the Buddha's teachings about a gradual path where we start with the ground, we work with the ground, we transform the ground, and from having ground, then we are able to let the unknown be what it is and allow the unknown to be our resting place. And what I only just realized after the ordination was I was trying to resolve from a mental sphere what needed to be attended to on a structural sphere. I needed sisters, I needed community, I needed a sense of other people who had the same kind of rules that I had that I could talk to about stuff. I needed a a way of, you know, being able to be with other people who were doing the same thing as me. So this sense of belonging is non-trivial. Absolutely non-trivial. But where we need to be careful is where we don't compromise our integrity in order to feel the belonging that we so deeply yearn for. And one of the things that I think can happen with any group is is, is that the longing to belong can then override the aspiration to awaken. And then when we do that, or if people do that, then the whole premise upon which people have started is somehow broken. So, this was the first time in the Western Hemisphere there was a Theravadan Bhikkhuni ordination. 
And so you now have a fully ordained bikini living in Colorado Springs. (laughs) 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 And Aya Tataloka spoke to me about registering awakening truth as a bikini training monastery. And she told me that she gets usually 30 to 40 candidates a year asking, and she can only accommodate two, and how many would I like? (laughs) And there are websites and organizations and people who are happy to support, and Mm. what do I need? And so, in one instance, the world is different. And yet, what's changed? So, you know, obviously it's going to take me a while to decompress and feel things out and to just, you know, let my energy recover because I'm a little bit tired. But I just feel this enormous sense of relief, unimaginable sense of relief. So let's stop there. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.